From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. So there are these two young fish and they're swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming the other way. And the fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And eventually one of them looks at the other one and goes, what the hell is water? These words are from a commencement speech given by one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, and I highly recommend checking it out. His whole point is that water is the medium in which we live. And if we don't ever take a step back to think about the fact that we've been immersed in water our whole lives, we will never realize how water and the fact that we're living inside of it impacts our vision in the way we think about the world. So this week, I'm going to ask you to imagine just for a moment that we are all fish. We've been swimming comfortably in an unlimited amount of water, and we've never actually really even considered just for a moment that the water is even there at all. Now let's imagine, because this is the world of crypto, (laughs) that the water is a magical thing known as liquidity. Everywhere we go, everything we do, it's all made possible because of this magical ether that makes movement frictionless and easy. Now imagine that one day, all of a sudden, this substance you've been swimming in, this aquarium, develops a massive leak and a bunch of water drains out overnight. What do you do? If you are a fish on dry land, how much will you pay for a glass of water? Jill? You'll pay anything. When you're a fish swimming in a pond with less and less water, you'd better be paying attention to where the currents are going. The last decade, we've seen central banks supply liquidity, providing an artificial bid underneath every market in the world. Now the water is being drained from the pond as the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, etc. shrink their balance sheets and raise interest rates. Liquidity. Everyone wants it. Everyone needs it. No one really seems to know what it means, but it's fun to say, and it makes you sound smart. And this week, (laughs) we're going to be diving in. Literally and metaphorically. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jill, (laughs) what the F is liquidity? (laughs) Oh, my God. You're triggering me here, Melton. You're giving Are your me- gears grinding is like <laughs> no. You're, you're just giving me PTSD to when I was an intern on Wall Street. Actually, oh, let's so hear this. <laughs> when when you're an intern on the trading desk, you can't actually really do anything. Like you can't trade. You obviously can't talk to clients. You're not licensed, right? You haven't taken the series exams. You're not really qualified to be there. So all you're, you're qualified financier. to do, you're, you're not, not you're a, not yet a fully grown financier. You're just a financier guppy. You're you're a guppy, that's right. Exactly. Not yet a shark. In, in the pond of liquidity. <laughs> no. But so all you can really do is go around and shadow the more senior people on the desk and try to not look like a complete idiot. And every so often you you walk around the trading desk with these little fold up stools, literally, and you sneak up behind one of the traders and you unfold your stool and sit down next to him or her. And every once in a while, he or she might turn around and explain to you what they're doing, but more likely he or she will turn around and sort of give you this withering look and then ask you just like a really hard question that you'd better know the answer to about what's going on in the markets or what they're doing. This is what a Wall Street internship actually looks like, the inside scoop. And one of my first days (laughs) as an intern, I remember going up to this equities trader, unfolding my little stool, sitting down behind him. 
And he turns around a few minutes later, doesn't acknowledge my presence until he turns around and goes, hey, kid, so what does liquidity mean? And I absolutely froze because I kind of knew what it meant. Like it meant sort of like how many buyers and sellers are in the market and like the volume that you could trade of a given stock or bond and how easily you could trade it and so on and so forth. Right. But, you were like, I went to Harvard. I know the answer. <laughs> going to Harvard would actually entail that you don't know the answer, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what to say and I just completely froze and he just kind of of glares at me for a few minutes until I just like shriveled up and said, um, I, I feel like I know, but I don't quite know how to explain it. So I have to say as much as it grinds my gears when I hear people misuse the word liquidity, I feel you. It's actually kind of hard to put your finger on and give a definition. Now, okay, but the, I the, 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 trader, the trader bailed me out and gave me the definition that I've clung to for dear life for the last seven years since then. But we'll get to that. Let's in a not few give minutes. it away. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's make let's take, work for let's it. Take them on the the, the yellow brick road. <laughs> La tira. All right. I don't have sparkly red shoes on, but I am happy to get us started on the path. So to understand liquidity, I want to start with a simpler question, which is why do people hold cash? And in crypto land, why do people hold tether, which is just dollars on a blockchain? So effectively cash. So to understand cash, just at a high level, cash pays no interest. It has no speculative price appreciation or depreciation. Um, if you're in the same country where that's the, the currency um, and you're not an FX trader. And it's fundamentally, cash is a pretty boring asset. Um, similarly, Tether and other US dollar pegged cryptocurrencies are fundamentally unexciting. We're taking dollars, putting them on a blockchain. But why do people want cash? Why do companies hold cash in their bank accounts? And why do individuals keep cash in their bank accounts? Well, the only reason anyone holds cash is to be ready to make a payment to someone. That's it. Cash only makes sense in the context of payments. There really is no other reason for someone to hold cash. It has no real risk advantage over other assets, and those other assets often offer a higher return. Um, tax season's coming up, so people in crypto land are probably converting some of their crypto into cash, which is how we pay taxes unless you live in Ohio. And the process of converting your assets into cash is actually called liquidating. And it's something that people do in advance of expected cash or spending needs. But really what I want to highlight here is liquidity, the concept has a lot to do with cash and payments. So when we talk about liquidity, let's just keep in mind that there is this fundamental transactional aspect we have to understand. That's right. And so so cash is our most liquid asset, specifically the US dollar. The cash that we in the United States operate in is the most liquid asset in the world. As we discussed in our initial country offering episode around sovereign debt markets, it's the most liquid asset. Everyone seems to want it. I'm not just saying that because I'm an American. Travel anywhere in the world, a cab driver will accept US dollars cash. Now, we'll talk a little bit about who manages liquidity of the US dollar and how. But first, it's important to note that there isn't actually enough US dollars for folks to hold. And the US dollar may not actually be the best thing for somebody to hold due to something called the opportunity cost of capital. Now, this has given rise to a host of other assets that people believe can be traded for cash on short notice, on predictable terms, and without undue labor costs. These qualities define the terms liquidity and liquid assets. When people say liquid assets, they typically mean government-issued cash and various kinds of promissory notes, or IOUs really, that are called money market instruments and get treated effectively like cash. These assets all have low yields, like Melton mentioned before, very little investment return, and they all have similar risk characteristics for one reason. They command a liquidity premium. Exactly. And so this week, as we dive into liquidity, a word whose misuse is probably the most triggering thing for both Jill and I. Would you agree, Jill? <laughs> It's misuse is very triggering. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I text you, signal you, pardon, because we like privacy. Girls just want to have privacy. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but I feel like uh, there are so many instances where people talk to me about liquidity and I just, I want to give them the withering gaze that that trader gave you <laughs> during your internship. <laughs> but then I feel compelled to um, delve into what it is. So as we go through this week, um, really what I want to do is I want to start breaking down liquidity as a concept in markets, in companies, and in individual assets. We're going to talk a bit about the role of exchanges, banks, market makers, and regulators in managing this esoteric concept known as liquidity. And then we're going to translate this over into crypto land. So should we get liquid, Jill? Should we go swimming? Let's get liquid, baby. Okay, so let's talk market liquidity. So we mentioned cash earlier. Now, one of the really annoying things about finance, the world of finance, is that often the same word gets used to have about five different unintuitive definitions. Cash is just such one of those words. So when we say the word cash in finance, we're not just talking about US dollars cash. Cash can be used to refer to this whole range of US government issued securities out there. So this includes US treasury bills, US treasury notes, US treasury bonds. All of those assets in aggregate combine to determine how liquid the overall market is, how many of these very liquid assets are sloshing around out there. So the market liquidity, the overall liquidity of the general market, this is the stock market, the bond market, even the mortgage market, the home loan market, et cetera, it's managed by the Federal Reserve, which uses monetary policy to influence how much money is out there. So the Fed has a few different knobs that it can turn in order to influence how liquid the market is. This includes setting the Fed funds rate, which is the rate at which the Fed lends money to other banks. It also includes open market buying and selling of U.S. government bills, notes, and bonds, all of this cash that I'm talking about. And this influences just about everything that we do. It influences how easy it is or how cheap or expensive it is to take out a loan. It influences... Uh, what the price of the equity market is doing. It influences everything. Everything. And the thing it especially influences is company liquidity. So we, Jill talked a little bit about the broader market. Um, let's take it down one level. So we went macro. Let's go a little more micro. Uh, when we look at companies, understanding and managing cash flow is really critical to any business. Um, you know, one of the things, so growing up, my dad was a scientist, um, still is a scientist, and he always liked to talk about the three laws of thermodynamics, which kind of govern everything <laughs> in our universe. And uh, there are three fundamental- I understand the t-shirt now, Meltem. <laughs> Do you? It's so dorky, <laughs> but um, you know, I, w- I was raised on on ration and Meltem- reason. And- <laughs> Meltem, when she last came out here, if you watched the YouTube version of our last episode, you'll notice I'm wearing a t-shirt that says- Bitcoin obeys the laws of thermodynamics. And it says Bitcoin secured by the laws of the oh, universe, me, which is yeah. a reference back to thermodynamics. <laughs> Very dorky. Um, but but what I think back to is, you know, I spent a lot of time studying corporate finance, corporate finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, um, just like the universe has the laws of thermodynamics, finance has three fundamental truths. They are uh, balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow. Right. These are the three things that sort of dictate how companies operate. And so if you look at the balance sheet, the first line item on any company's balance sheet under the assets section or the left side of the balance sheet is cash and cash equivalents. And this really is meant to indicate highly liquid assets that can be used to cover liabilities or payments, which are on the right side of the balance sheet. And it's really important to note that a lack of liquidity or an inability to meet obligations for payment has killed many a business. That is why finance professionals like myself will look at things like the current ratio, quick ratio, or the quote unquote acid test, all of which are financial ratios to determine if a company has sufficient cash on hand to cover its obligations. Did you just say acid test? <laughs> that is that is actually financial ratio. <laughs> I've um, actually never heard of that. That's hilarious. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is out there. Um, but uh, the total value of assets that a company owns could be really high. But a company or individual can really run into liquidity issues if the assets they hold can't be readily converted into cash. So um, here's a great example, right? So take Bitmain. 
Bitmain's really relevant story right now. Bitmain filed for an IPO in the height of crypto boom times. They're a company that makes um, mining chips and Bitcoin mining chips specifically and cryptocurrency mining chips. And they also run mining pools that produce cryptocurrencies. And so um, when their assets on hand, cryptocurrencies and these mining chips were priced really high because of demand, um, they were doing really good. Everything looked good. They could liquidate Bitcoin to meet their obligations. But when the market for crypto began to crater at the start of 2018 and then started dropping hard, um, especially because they held a lot of Bitcoin cash, they couldn't liquidate these assets for money. And they were forced- you mean Bcash? Yeah, Bcash. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> no, it's not Bcash. It's, it's not, not Bcash. Bcash. No, it's not Bcash. Um, but they couldn't get cash to pay their obligations for the assets they had on hand. And Uh really what happens, yeah, when a company can't raise money, what they do is they go to banks or creditors and they try to sell assets. They try to liquidate assets to meet their short-term obligations. They couldn't do that. So what they did, they raised money via private pre-IPO round. Because guess what? I have some friends in the desert who will fund that. (laughs) (laughs) The desert or the playa? (laughs) Both. All of the above. Um, But here's what's interesting, right? Um, Is these finance follies we talk about, we're going to link it in the show notes, pretty interesting stuff. But when we talk about liquidity, it impacts not just the broader market, it impacts companies. And companies really suffer when they're unable to access capital markets. That's right. And so let's just note here for a second, the banks are playing a really important role in all of this by lending cash to companies while holding assets as collateral. This is going to come into play later on in the episode. We'll talk about 2008. We'll talk about the current crypto crisis. But so companies attempt to optimize this cost of capital. This is why they not only sell stock and equity to raise money, but they also take on debt, right? Companies typically can't hold cash the way a consumer can. Imagine trying to carry out trading at this kind of volume using government-provided cash, paying no interest, or nearly so, to settle accounts. Crazy. Right. I I would have gotten shot, right? (laughs) I used to work for the treasurer of ExxonMobil. One of our primary metrics, um, there were two things we cared about at ExxonMobil when I was there. First was maintaining our AAA credit rating which was a function of having a lot of cash on hand. And the second was the ability to access debt at low to no cost. And so we were issuing commercial paper or raising money in the overnight market at about three basis points, very, very low. But what we thought about all the time was the opportunity cost of capital. So you could have cash sitting on your balance sheet, or you could buy T-bills at 2%, or you could invest in R&D, or you could invest in the broader market or VC, or you do stock buybacks. It was really all about optimizing the capital structure. And cash is the worst thing for a company to have on hand. That's right. And I want to jump in with a little aside there just about credit and credit ratings. People often think about, okay, like a company, it's doing well, it has a lot of incoming revenue, and it has a lot of assets sitting on its balance sheet. It must be very credit worthy. But No, just like a human, just like a person, an individual can have, you know, houses all around the world and yachts, they still might not be the most credit worthy individual because those assets might not be liquid. And so just like for individuals, companies, it all comes down to their liquidity or their cash on hand. That is absolutely true. And so here is where um, we want to get into asset level liquidity. Asset liquidity. Yeah. And I just want to talk um, really quickly about one of my favorite investors. Will you indulge me, Jill? Can I I do a little Howard Marks moment? Oh, Howard Marks. I I want to say the definition that that trader, that equities trader gave me (laughs) after he made me feel like an absolute fool for several long moments was the Howard Marks definition. So take it away, Maltem. I love it. Um, so Howard Marks, for those who don't know, um, he is an investor who runs this firm called Oak Tree. And um, we've linked it in the show notes. He writes these great memos when he's inspired. And he wrote this great memo on liquidity back in 2015. And I'm just going to read it. It's going to be a little boring, but, but bear with me. 
So when people think of liquidity, they often think of it as the quality of something being readily saleable or marketable. For this, the key question is whether it's registered, publicly listed, or legal for sale to the public. So marketable securities are liquid in this sense. You can buy and sell them in the public market. Non-marketable securities include things like private placements, interests in private partnerships, whose saleability is restricted and can require the qualification of buyers, documentation, and often a time delay. But here's the more important definition of liquidity, and it comes from Investopedia. Liquidity is the degree to which an asset or security can be bought or sold in the market without affecting the asset price. Thus, the criteria is not, can you sell it? It's really, can you sell it at a price equal or close to the last price? And so for something to be truly liquid, you have to be able to move it promptly and without imposing a material discount. So Joe, do you want to, Howard Marks, do you want to untangle that? I, I just, I think it's so important because especially in crypto, people are like, oh yeah, well, like we want to get liquidity for a token. And I'm like, you don't know what the fuck liquidity means. It doesn't mean that it's listed on Bitbox or whatever. I don't even know what the shitcoin exchanges are now. Like that's not what liquidity means. Liquidity means that the market has depth that exactly. it can absorb buys and sells. Exactly. So to make this concrete, I love that these these terrible illiquid just nightmare bonds that I used to have to trade are now becoming a meme on this podcast. But let's go back to a couple episodes or last episode, I talked about having to trade the Dominican Republic 2049 issue bonds. That means that they're maturing in 2049. It was like this off the run illiquid bond. If you know any buyers of Dominican Republic debt, please send them my way because I'm probably still sitting on some from many years ago (laughs) when I had to trade this stuff for my old company. Now, these bonds, I I could buy them and sell them any day of the week. I could, but I couldn't buy them and sell them at an even semi reasonable price, right? Like if the fair market value of them was probably about 100 or 100 cents on the dollar, then I could probably buy them at like 110 or sell them at 90. So that's a spread of 20 points, right? Like ideally you want to be buying low and selling high. I could buy really, really high or sell really, really low, (laughs) thereby moving the market. No bueno, not liquid. But, but I think this is exactly the point, right? When people say an asset is not liquid or illiquid, what they're really saying is, A, this asset's going to take longer to sell, and B, if you want to sell it quickly, you're going to take less than face value. You're that fish out of water and you're going to pay exactly. anything for the liquidity. Exactly. And this is exactly the case with complex or niche investment products, art, hedge funds, real estate, wine. Um, We'll get to this when we talk about security tokens, at which point I may actually lose my mind and break my laptop, but (laughs) let's let's let it ride until then. And so really when we talk about liquidity and what Jill's talking about when she talks about these Dominican bonds she used to trade, it's really about getting into and out of investments easily and smoothly and quickly. And as a result, what ends up happening, one of the things that we do as investors is you have to monitor liquidity. And there are a bunch of different metrics you can use. And in fact, when you, you know, go to your little uh, Charles Schwab platform and you type in, you know, G-O-O-G, the ticker symbol for Google, some of the key stats they give you is uh, traded volume over the last market period and last market day, 52-week high, 52-week low. And that way you kind of get an indication of, well, is the stock traded regularly? Is the current price range it's in within a reasonable band? Is it within several standard deviations of what it's traded at historically? Because you want to be able to know before you enter a position that you're going to be able to get out of it at a price that's okay for you. And I want to add to this, it's not just about the asset. It's not just about the Dominican Republic bonds. It's also about the size. There's this phrase that goes something along the lines of, there are no bad positions, there's just bad sizing. And that is that is really all just about <laughs> liquidity, right? That yeah. what, what that's trying to get at is that you can be totally right about the market. Like maybe those Dominican Republic bonds did go up 25 points, 
But if I'm going to have to sell out of them because I have too many of them 10 points lower, well, that's not great, right? So it's a combination of sizing, market volume. There are all of these factors that go into it, which again, understandably, it makes this kind of a tricky subject to clarify and a kind of a tricky word to just define in in a given in a in a sentence. Well, but let's let's keep going on this topic. So let's actually go through the different types of assets and how we think about liquidity for these assets. Let's do it. So why does liquidity even matter? Everyone's like, rah, rah, rah. liquidity, liquidity. Um so <laughs> what was did it <laughs> like womp 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 liquidity look liquid. no are you not into it <laughs> sound like a creature from the goonies okay please okay continue. i probably am what's the the thing with the stomp the truffle shuffle oh my god <laughs> we went there we went there okay but like rolling it all back the reason we're talking about liquidity is because all there are a bunch of concepts that are interlinked together and it's gonna make sense when we talk about this example So when we say there's high liquidity in the market, we mean there's a lot of money. There's a lot of water sloshing around, right? The fishies feel good, but there can be too much of a good thing. There's something called a liquidity glut, pardon, not a liquidity gut, like the truffle shuffle, (laughs) the liquidity (laughs) glut. And it develops when there's way too much capital looking for way too few investments. Banks getting high on their own supply. Hell yeah. And then cheap money is chasing fewer and fewer profitable investments and the prices of these assets increase. And it doesn't really matter. It can be houses, it can be gold, it can be high-tech companies, or it can be tokens. And so when we're in this environment where there's a liquidity glut, you get something called irrational exuberance. Party on, baby. Um, Hell yeah. Um, Investors start to think the prices are only going to rise. Everyone wants to buy so they don't miss out on tomorrow's profits. They want to spin at the casino wheel. And so they create an asset bubble. And so what happens is more and more money gets invested into terrible projects. And as these ventures go defunct and don't pay out their promised returns, investors are left holding worthless assets. Also known as bags. Bags. (laughs) That's right. Panic ensues. It results in a withdrawal of money. Liquidity gets tight and prices start to plummet because investors are scrambling madly for the exits. They're scrambling to sell before prices stop further. That's what happened when mortgage-backed securities um, hit the market during the subprime mortgage crisis. And this is what's called an economic contraction. And these contractions usually lead to a recession. Also, what I just described is basically what happened in crypto over the last three years. That's right. I We actually talked about this in our first ever episode. I kept calling it the canary in the coal mine for crypto because at the time we recorded it, I believe, back in November, December, and the Federal Reserve was starting to unwind some of the liquidity that it's been That's pumping right. into the market since 2008. Got to raise those rates, baby. Yeah, got to hike. And correspondingly, <laughs> the riskiest assets out there in the market – Notably crypto, but also technology stocks, uh, other illiquid assets, um, art markets, fine fine art cars, uh, real estate markets, we're all starting to soften. And in the case of cryptocurrency, not just soften, but the floor was falling out from underneath it. But by the way, what I think's um important to look at here is if we put on, if we take off the crypto hat and put on kind of the macro hat, you look at the venture capital ecosystem. We have companies that, you know, have been at it for six, eight, 10 years. They're raising series F, series G, series H's in the case of some companies, and they're still not going public. The reason why no one's had a good IPO. Snap crushed, Spotify crushed, Lyft crushed, Blue Apron crushed. So there are a bunch of people sitting on the sidelines with really large bags. And I actually think venture might be one of the next bubbles to pop, which is interesting. Possibly. And something that we're getting out here, uh, getting at here, excuse me, is that the farthest out areas of the risk spectrum in terms of assets are usually actually the last to benefit from overall market liquidity. And the first to feel the pain when that liquidity starts to get unwound. And so all of these assets that we've just described, whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's venture capital, et cetera, 
All of these things are the farthest out along the risk spectrum. And the last things to feel it will be the sort of safe zones, right? So right. things like other other government bonds that have good credit ratings, companies bo- bonds that have good credit ratings, um, consumer staples in the equities markets, etc. So I think there are two more things I want to cover before we get into crypto liquidity, which is going to be an absolute disaster to talk about. It's really <laughs> sad and really funny, and it's depressing. It um, makes me sad, Milton, every time you describe something in crypto is sad and funny. It just... <laughs> It's sad and funny. It's well, we share we share something in common, um, Jill. I almost actually knocked over my microphone, so I'm starting again. Um, not in Hugo's office this time, but I'm knocking over things in my own home, which is uh, wonderful. I'm sure that will be great. Um, but but there are two things we need to talk about here. Um, one is the role of banks it really matters um, because I think it's going to be really relevant for what happens in the crypto ecosystem. And then the second we need to talk about is uh, market microstructure. So how we evaluate liquidity, where liquidity is created, trading venues, market makers, some of the basic concepts that I think are just helpful to define. So let's start with banks. Banks. So I know that you, I know you've worked a lot on sort of post 2008 regulation as well. One of the delights of being the junior kid on the trading desk post 2008 was none of the senior traders wanted to deal with any of the new regulations that were coming down the pipes from Congress, uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, Basel requirements, that's obviously, yeah, yeah Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, Basel was obviously not from Congress, that was from out of Europe, et cetera, but all of these regulations that were really going to cramp these trader styles. And so it fell to me as the junior kid to figure out what we needed to do. Um, Now, these regulations were important because they were all about reducing risk, reducing the risk that traders can take, reducing the risk on the balance sheet of banks. Because they really mucked it up. (laughs) They really like... They ruined all the fun for everyone. It, It reminds me a little bit like there was this party that that someone threw when I was in college. There was an awesome party. It happened every year. It had a theme, et cetera. And then one year, one kid showed up and he set off a fire extinguisher at the venue where the party was held. And that was like, that was the end of the fun for everyone. That party was never held again. You like the following year, it was just called off. And I feel like the bank kind of did that in 2008, right? Like, So I graduated from university in the depths of the financial crisis. My friends had their offers rescinded. Some of them had the companies they were supposed to join evaporate overnight. A la Bear Stearns and <laughs> Lehman, like it was a it was a very dark time. But banks took a look, right? They woke up and they were like, "Wow, we need to do something because this liquidity glut, the fact that we had just been pumping capital into the system, there was so much water. The fish were getting drunk on water. Got to cut it back a bit." And uh, really what this means, um, liquidity is really primary concern in banking environment. And not having enough liquidity, not having enough capital is a trigger for bank failures, right? Because people make go for a run on the bank. Whenever people are worried about their ability to get cash, they tend to hoard it. And this is and what so happened with Lehman, right? Yep, exactly. But this is why people uh, tend to hold assets in highly liquid form. And so banks are going to try to reduce liquid assets as far as possible. And in fact, with Basel III, um, there's a requirement around how much cash or how much deposit capital a bank is required to have on hand. A bank only needs to have 10% of its total liabilities on hand, which is a crazy ratio. Right. It means that if more than 10% of the deposit holders try to come and cash out, they're going to run out of cash. But um, this apparently is sufficient bank requirement. And now actually a few weeks ago, it was announced that gold was going to be treated as a cash equivalent for bank purposes. Um, But basically in 2009, Basel III, which was this new rule around bank liquidity, got rid of a bunch of the off-balance sheet shenanigans that banks used to engage in, the way they used to share liquidity with other banks. But banks really need to have cash on hand. And so today, banks spend a lot of time thinking about liquidity. The result is bank regulation. And so anytime a bank's regulated, what you get is there are all these great incentives to create assets outside of the banking system. So 
let's not just talk about banks. Jill, do you want to quickly talk about market microstructure? Market <laughs> microstructure. I want to tell one quick anecdote and then I'll talk about market microstructure. Mm, I, don't is- I don't know. I don't know. Is it a good? Am I going to laugh? <laughs> I need to laugh. You might cry. I don't know. It depends on how much PTSD you have from your uh, 2008 graduation. I really like, I have none. I kind of viewed it as a moment in time. So at this moment in time, Lehman Brothers went under. Lehman Brothers, for you youngster millennials out there who don't remember, was one of the biggest bulge bracket banks in the world. They went under and they that was in part because they didn't have that was basically completely because they didn't have enough liquidity on their books and there are all of these great famous pictures of them carting their fine art out of all of their offices in order to sell that for liquid assets i.e cash in order to pay off some of their toxic assets so that was the one little thing that i wanted to point out there is a very tangible example of what happens when banks actually i have a question here um and it's actually just a question to our broader audience uh so there's a famous picture of them carting um the sign out so there's a sign on the front of the lehman building in you know down on wall street in new york um and it, there's like a group of people taking the sign off the building, carrying it away. Somebody owns that sign. I really want that sign. That's hilarious, actually. Yeah, I, 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 I never. That I, know the so picture that, I know the picture that you're talking about, but I've never thought about that. Yes, someone has that sign somewhere. And I feel, you know, there was this great uh, Twitter thread the other day where people were posting like Bear Stearns mugs, Lehman mugs, like paraphernalia they owned from back in the day. I actually, in my office, if people ever come by my office, I have a giant box filled with crypto swag. I have like all of this old hardware. I have a bunch of shirts. Um, I have a bunch of swag that companies have given me over the years and I've bought over the years. And I feel like one day I'm going to have like a crypto member memorabilia museum I'm gonna gonna have that grandma that's like oh back in the day Tron you got big torrent that's gonna be okay sorry um okay so moving on from banks let's talk about market microstructure now market microstructure is the way that the mechanisms through which trading actually happens at the micro level, right? So it's magic, Jill. It happens magically. Milton magic. mentioned earlier that if you go on Google Finance or Yahoo Finance and you look up Google stock price, it'll also show you all of these things around the daily traded volume. It might show you the last traded price. So market depth is one of the most important things around liquidity. Volume is a component of this, but it's really about the two different sides of the order book, right? And so if you have ever traded crypto or ever traded uh, on your Charles Schwab account, et cetera, you might see the buy price, which is the bid, and also the sell price, which is the offer. So if you're going in to buy some Bitcoin, you're lifting an offer. If you're going in to sell some of that Google stock on Charles Schwab, you're hitting a bid. Now, the order book is comprised of all of these bids and offers. It's aggregated in places called market venues. So in the equities markets, these are things like NYSE, NASDAQ, ICE, etc., And often the liquidity is actually linked across different venues. So you can determine the liquidity of an asset by looking for data around market cap, daily traded volume, again, the average rolling 30-day volatility, the range in which that asset has been trading. Yep. Nope. And actually, this these are the metrics, again, when we get into the crypto bit, these are the metrics that in crypto are really hard to find. And when you do find them, are not trustworthy. And so it's important to note here, last week when we talked about interoperability, um, sorry, two weeks ago when we talked about interoperability, Jill and I had a long conversation around market microstructure, and I drew those great spaghetti charts. If you haven't seen them yet, highly recommend. Really, what we were trying to explain is some of this structure and how well-organized, highly transparent, highly liquid markets work. And the reason they work is because of data transparency. That's right. That's right. Now, the last thing I want to cover around market structure real quick is market makers. So listed assets, really all assets have market makers for them. So when I talk about having been a trader, 
I was a market maker, although I was also getting taken for a ride by the markets. But a market maker is someone who is dedicated to providing those bids, again, to buy and offers to sell in the market. And if you are that person who is going in and selling your Google stock and hitting the bid, you are a price taker of the market maker. And so market makers are, again, this professional class. They make money by doing this. They usually make money on maybe fees, but also primarily the spread of the market. But more importantly, I think the market maker has to fill any orders they get. Right. And so there is this um, interesting kind of paradigm um, where, you know, market making is actually really serious function. It's a highly specialized role. You have to have a lot of cash on hand. You have to have a strong balance sheet as a company to engage in this activity. And again, one of the things that just really ground my gears all through 2018, ICOs be like, yeah, we're looking for someone to market make. But really what they meant is they were looking for someone to pump the price of the token by buying a bunch of it and then holding it and stabilizing any sell action in the market by just soaking up all of the sell. That's not market making. That's price manipulation. And that's actually illegal. So I just, I really just had such a visceral reaction to people being like, oh yeah, I'm a crypto market maker. I was like, you're not, you're actually not. You were engaging in uh, price manipulation, which is like kind of fraudulent, but you know, what do I, what do I know? I'm just a girl who likes crypto. What do I know? And with that, shall we dive into crypto markets? So we've gotten to the crypto part. (laughs) Here we are. Let's talk Uh, crypto uh, liquidity. All right. So look, here's what's up. Blockchains, crypto markets, they're basically a trader's wet dream. Here's why. Normal markets are... (laughs) You, you know the answer. You're being facetious. So normal markets are open from 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern time during the week, Monday through Friday, except for federal holidays. And uh, many assets can't actually get listed on public markets due to these silly rules from the SEC, like the SEC Act of 1940 and all these other rules, right? So blockchain, we have blockchains, yay. Uh, blockchains are going to solve all these problems. They solve the regulatory problem. They solve the liquidity problem by allowing traders and markets to operate 24-7. You can sell assets immediately, yada, 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 yada. Melton, my ears are bleeding. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because none of that's true. (laughs) Stop it. Just chill. Narrative. Hashtag narrative. narrative. Hashtag Stop it. Okay. So this is the this is the premise we've been sold though, right? Um, Crypto markets twenty four seven. You know, you can go hundred x on Bitmax. You can lever up. Um, You can do all of these things that in normal markets you wouldn't be able to do. And you know what? This all leads us down this really dark path that gets to security tokens. But before we grind on security tokens, because I may actually smash my microphone this time, um, I want to grind a little bit on. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies Wait, in the market. Before before I let you get carried away here, I just want to clarify that Meltem, I assume you're being tongue in cheek when you say that all of these problems get solved by blockchains. <laughs> no, I'm being a hundred percent facetious. They're actually made ten times worse. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I I honestly I almost had a, like a little bit of a heart attack there. And like you said it, you said it so deadpan. I was like Oh my God! Wait, what if I need to break up with Meltem? Do I need to break up with my friend? How do I extract myself from doing this podcast? Sorry, no. Okay, okay. Blockchains are a technology. They do not solve regulatory issues. They also do not solve liquidity. We'll get into that more momentarily. But chill. Hashtag blockchain. (laughs) Decentralize. The narrative. All right. So security tokens. We're gonna get there in a second. But first, as you said, the 24-7 crypto market. That is not, by the way, the equivalent of a liquid market. (laughs) Being open for more hours actually probably makes the market less liquid because you know what creates liquidity? Aggregation. 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 Having a concentrated venue, having a venue that links to other venues in terms of liquidity, but also having a lot of people, a lot of traders, a lot of buyers and sellers in the same place at once. Exactly. Like if Google traded 24-7, the market for Google would not be as liquid. 
Exactly. And it would be terrible because no one can staff a trading desk 24-7. That's the biggest problem with operating crypto is you can't have a desk staffed 24-7. I actually, here's an anecdote from my trading days. So when I worked at this family office in Houston where we were trading commodities and different energy products, um, we had a 24-hour power desk. Okay. Now this was a small office. It was run out of like this bougie townhouse in a very Tony neighborhood in Houston. Um, (laughs) And I remember most distinctly, not anything that happened on the 24-hour power desk, but mostly what happened to anyone who worked on that desk. These people had black circles under their eyes. They were consuming probably a lot of substances to keep them awake at really strange hours because you're trading something 24-7. It is like the worst possible way to to live. It is a terrible lifestyle. It is a terrible thing. Um, It is bad for everyone involved. I I want to clarify something though because I I feel like people might listen to this and say, okay, so like other markets do trade 24-7 and they make it work. So what's wrong with crypto? But those markets like oil, like gold, like futures, they still have conventions around when there's liquidity. And so even the markets I used to trade, bond markets, in theory, they're 24-7. But let me tell you, you would not want to be getting me on the line at 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time because I'm not going to give you a very tight, good, deep market. Exactly. So, but this is where, um, so this week, Bitwise, right, which is an asset management firm, published a piece and they claimed in this piece, and it wasn't, it was something they actually presented to the SEC. Um, They claimed that 95% of volume on crypto exchanges was faked, right? So, first of all, like this narrative has been existing in the crypto ecosystem as long as exchanges have existed. We've all heard about this phenomenon called wash trading, which we'll get into. But why does this matter? Why should we care that this volume data is faked? Well, as we've talked about, one of the key criteria that investors use when they're evaluating and managing risk of their positions is the depth of the market or the amount of open interest for buying and selling. So what do both sides of the order book look like? And so what this report was claiming is with all of this faked volume, basically what we're seeing is a complete distortion of the market by a few small inside players who are effectively manipulating pricing, who are manipulating other people's perception of what they'll be able to buy and sell at. And as you can imagine, if you're taking this information, you're presenting it to a regulator. Um, Now, arguably, the SEC is not the right regulator to share this with. It would be the CFTC who's responsible for overseeing markets and the fair and orderly conduct of markets that would be most concerned with this. But clearly, the SEC is the entity that improves investment products, investment vehicles. There's obviously an argument to be made here that there is a need for better products. Um, to enable more market efficiency, transparency. But um, look, these crypto markets, they're really hard to get a track of, to get hold of. And it's exactly because of what we've talked about in the past, Jill. It's the fact that there are no centralized repositories. There is no oversight. There is no centralized depository to which you report all trades. There isn't any real effective market making. There are no real rules and oversight. There are no real standards of conduct. There isn't an, even an electronic communication network that's connecting all of the different brokers. The majority of trading is happening over the counter. So it's super hard to figure out where can I actually buy and sell this stuff. Actually, the only way you can find out, Jill, which I learned the hard way, is by trying to do it on an exchange. That's right. And I I just want to return for a second to who cares? Why does this matter? It matters because of what I said earlier about sizing. Sizing is absolutely critical when you're considering a trade, when you're considering a position. And if one of your major inputs into liquidity considerations is off, then chances are you've completely missized every trade in your portfolio. Exactly. And this is the problem. I actually remember this. Um, It was in February. I was at uh, February 2018. I was at a Credit Suisse event um, in San Francisco. I think he might have been there, Jill. Maybe I saw you there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I was was chatting with Tom Lee on stage about risk management. And I got off stage and Bitcoin had gone down to, I think, 10 or 11,000. And I went on GDAX, which is Coinbase's um, professional trading platform. It's now called Coinbase Pro. And I tried to put in a sell order. 
right? And so I thought I could sell at $11,000 for Bitcoin, but I put in the sell order. I think it was for five or maybe 10 Bitcoins. And the slippage or the amount of deviation on that order was close to 10%. Jesus, that is, that is nasty. That is is crazy, right? That's a really tiny order, right? So so that amount of money typically in a market, you know, $100,000 order is not really a lot in a market. But the fact that on one platform, the amount of slippage or the amount of price um, movement is 10%, that's insane. And this is the interesting thing about these crypto markets. This is why this data really matters. This is why this phenomenon is so important is you have a bunch of people who are going out in the market who are buying these things, believing they'll be able to get out of these positions. When in fact, when they actually go to try and do that, they find that they are trapped. They are that fish out of water. That's right. And so what I want to get to here is clearly this is a problem. But um, there are a bunch of solutions that are being created and being experimented with to try to resolve some of these fundamental challenges. So the first product that I think is really interesting is Blockstream's liquid product. And its name, Liquid, implies <laughs> it's aimed at creating liquidity. It's pretty, cr- <laughs> pretty creative. Actually, what I love about this project, it's one of the first projects I worked on back in 2015 when I led Digital Currency Group's investment into Blockstream. And the idea, idea really at the time, um, Bitcoin was really the only asset that had a liquid market or a market really at all to speak of. And the idea was to create a side chain that was pegged to Bitcoin where you could pool global liquidity. And so I think that idea is pretty cool, right? What if we could create one market? So instead of having all of these different exchanges where things trade independently, what if we can use a side chain that's pegged to the original asset to try to aggregate volume? So, so to your point earlier, Jill. Melton, I sorry, I, I want to interrupt you here because I don't actually know that much about Blockstream's liquid. And all I can think right now is like, why does this need to be on a chain at all, side chain, a main chain, a chain chain, whatever. Why why have liquidity on a blockchain? And what does that even mean? Right. Well, I think the idea here is right, liquidity is really all about your ability to aggregate volume and to create depth in a market. Meaning when people try to move orders in size, they can stay at or near the price that people think they're going to be at. Mm-hmm. Right. There is not so much slippage. There's not that experience I had when I tried to use Coinbase Pro. And so um, I think this is where the idea was. Again, Blockstream is a company that's very focused on, you know, keeping things true to the cypherpunk Bitcoin spirit. Um, so the idea was having this on-chain will create true a true one-to-one defensible peg between Bitcoin and synthetic Bitcoin on the sidechain, as opposed to having to trust another market maker or another market participant, they have the assets they say they have if it were just a data repository. Okay. Right? And how is that aggregating liquidity though? So the idea was instead of having to constantly cross, look at all of these exchanges, try to figure out these cross exchange arbitrages, figure out where you could get the best pricing, mm-hmm. all of these exchanges would pool their assets in one place. So instead of having a bunch of different order books, you I have see. one global order book, right? I see. So the idea was, is let's concentrate all of this activity, all of this market volume in one place. And then instead of having individual venues with their individual order books will have individual trading venues that all plug into the same on-chain order book. And the idea is really one about mitigating the fact that you're relying on these exchanges to actually be exactly. custodying these things, right? It's what we talked about at the bank runs earlier. You don't want to exactly. risk it's being able to prove. exchanges are under collateralized. Because really, I mean, you could just get a bunch of exchanges together and create an abstracted order book that's aggregating the best bid and offer from every exchange. You could just do that. Most markets have these things like order routers, whatever, but this is that kind of cypherpunk vision, I understand. Got it. But there's also... 
But there's also a fundamental problem in crypto markets because we have had a long history of many exchanges engaging some, in something called wash trading, mm-hmm. which is where they're buying and selling on their own books. So they're creating fake volume, right? And this was the big narrative around exchanges in China back in 2016, 2017, yeah. was that they were wash trading like crazy and some crazy amount, like 98 or 99% of the volume on these exchanges was, that, was actually fake. It was them trading against themselves. So no money was actually moving. There was no real depth in the market. They just wanted to attract people to their exchange on the illusion of liquidity. And then when people showed up, it wasn't actually there. So the idea is, okay, we have this technology where we can verifiably prove these assets are are there. And so could we use it to create more efficiency in these market structures, which I actually think is really interesting. Totally. Now, lots of problems and challenges with that, but interesting. So let's go... To the opposite of the cypherpunk vision, Meltem. <laughs> no, I don't want I'm to. I'm <laughs> kicking and screaming once more into the land of security tokens. Let's go. All right, Jill. You made you made me go there. We're going to talk about security tokens, and right. I am going to break things. We're going to keep this short and sweet, so hopefully the damage to Meltem's home can be minimal. Um, but we would be remiss not to discuss one of the bigger narratives in the crypto market, which is that of security tokens. And in particular, one of the narratives around security tokens is that by putting stocks, bonds, real, real estate assets, other securities on a blockchain, by blockchainifying them, you will also be making them more liquid. And then Why? if they're more liquid, they will be more tradable and be a higher yield investment because there is no liquidity premium that you would have with hard to sell stuff. Okay. So that's, that's the high level narrative, right? I can't. I want to tell so one more it's... little anecdote about Wall Street before we close out this episode and before Milton smashes too many plates. So... Again, I was a bond trader. Now, bond markets are known for being extremely fragmented, not having very good standards around them, and being therefore a lot less liquid than equities markets, which have a single venue. Because again, liquidity is all about aggregation. So if all of the traders, all of the buyers and sellers are aggregated in one or a handful of venues or exchanges, those markets are going to be a lot more liquid than if you have to call up 18 different banks, 18 different traders at 18 different banks to figure out what their prices are, right? Now, so many startups have tried to start companies in the space of bond market liquidity to the point where, uh, God, what's his name? Bloomberg, money t- money stuff. Matt Levine. Oh, Matt Levine. God, how can I blink on that? Sorry. Yeah, Matt that's... Levine has this great quote about people are worried about bond market liquidity. It's like this reprise that he does throughout all of his, all of his uh, newsletters. And people are worried about bond market liquidity. And therefore, again, all of these companies, all of these startups have entered the space and tried to create trading venues, tried to create market standards for bond markets, tried to solve this problem in all of these ways using technology. Yep. But let me tell you, it's not a technology problem. It's a coordination problem. Mm. It's a market structure problem. Exactly. And I can't help but think of this when I think about how people are worried about security token market liquidity. People are worried about crypto <laughs> market liquidity. It's like, it's not what, a technology issue. But what market liquidity, right? So let's just take one step back. So the whole premise is all of these people are super optimistic that programmable ownership, smart contracts on these esoteric assets that have historically not been liquid, i.e. have been difficult to buy and sell, that putting them on a blockchain, making them digital um, is going to make it more efficient, more transparent. Um, It's going to allow people to access this $1.7 trillion market for private placements or private investments. And the idea is um, primary issuance will be easier and trading more importantly will be easier and uh, that's like not 
true at all because for markets to <laughs> exist, okay, that's like gonna, not true, guys. No, okay, <laughs> so for markets to exist, you need two things, right? What is a market comprised of? Buyers, sellers at its core. Buyers and sellers convene on these trading venues we've talked about. They want to be able to place bids and offers to buy and sell. And then they want to execute clear and settle their trades. And to be convinced, there's going to be a person who wants to buy their assets after they themselves purchase them. This was the entire thesis, Jill, of the post I wrote about a year ago called Drowning in Tokens. That night when I got really drunk, stayed up till 4 a.m. and spent the whole night. It was like a Friday night in Manhattan. I was, people were like, where are you? Why are you not coming out? I was like, I'm writing. Even you were like, Melton, please stop. You're scaring me. But I needed to get it out because people don't understand. Markets are about buyers and sellers. So the fact that you can take something that nobody wants and put it on a blockchain doesn't mean that there's going to be liquidity. It doesn't mean that people are going to be trading it. Like That intellectual leap, that psychological leap is 10 steps too far. That's right. Because ultimately it comes down to who are the market participants? How frequently do they trade? What are the standards around it? And yes, you can maybe solve some issues of like information and data transparency and some of these things that we've talked about throughout this episode. But fundamentally, changing the infrastructure on which something is traded does not change the liquidity profile of the asset. Not at all. And the other people don't understand. The other thing people do not understand, this is actually about understanding psychology. Markets are a game of psychology. Mm -hmm. We talked about this last week with prediction markets. So when you're thinking about liquidity, really what you're thinking about, and this is what you learned in your bond trading. This is what I learned in my carbon credit trading. What you're thinking about, who are all of the other people in the world who either hold this asset or want to hold this asset? Are they going to react the same way to story on Bloomberg. Do they own these assets and funds where they have the right to make withdrawals? And if so, that's going to be a problem. Are they highly levered? Do they need cash? Are they subject to potential margin calls? If you have ownership of assets concentrated in the hands of investors who might be motivated to sell en masse, Liquidity is going to disappear really fast because liquidity is ephemeral. We learned this with ICOs and tokens. Things were fine until all of a sudden things weren't fine. And security tokens suffer from exactly the same problem. Totally. Totally. And, you know, I get that it's good marketing to be able to say when someone asks you about your security token. Now, what problem is this solving? To be able to wave your hands and say liquidity, but please, for the love of God, make sure that you know what that word means and make sure that you understand that you're probably lying. But Jill, this is what but this is why it's so damaging. What people are doing is they're trying to market liquidity in a way to make investors lower the bar, lower the standards have they have for investments. So there's a Warren Buffett quote here. If you aren't willing to own a stock for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right? If people are buying these things with the assumption that it's easy and cheap to get in and get out, and then they get in and they find they can't get out, we have exactly the same problem that every person who's marketed in a liquid asset over the last 80 years, however long these rules have been around, has had. I, I honestly, I don't really know what else to say about this because I feel like you and I could probably talk for another 10 minutes about how this is wrong and how this is intellectually lazy to try and say that that a blockchain is going to improve liquidity. The one thing that I, I do want to add here is if you want proof that a blockchain is not going to make your asset more liquid, Look no further than the cryptocurrency markets. Please. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And again, I hopefully with this episode, I think my goal was really you and I, Jill, have had so many late night conversations about this term liquidity, um, what it means, how to define it, how to think about it. Look, at the end of the day, what we're trying to say here, this long conversation 
liquidity is a really complex topic. There are many different factors. There are many different places in which liquidity can and cannot be present. You can look at it through a variety of different lenses. But at its core function, liquidity is not about the fact that something's on an exchange or a blockchain. Really, the only thing we're talking about is the ability to move into and out of positions easily, cheaply, in size, and without taking a discount. And if we could all start to think about liquidity in a better way, in the context of a fish who is swimming in water. We have always assumed we've been surrounded by water. We're not even aware of the water until the water is not there. And that's basically been the last 10 years in this market. We've been swimming around in all of this sloshy cash, and boy, has it been fun. But Oh, baby, it feels good. <laughs> the water is warm. We're talking liquid. <laughs> <laughs> Real that's, that's a that's a Gordon Gecko Wall Street quote, by the way. If you haven't watched Wall Street, go download it. I'm sure it's on Netflix or one of these others. He says, I'm talking liquid, rich enough to have your own jet. That's what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> been the last 10 years. Well, you know, money has been cheap, cash has been available, and be prepared. It might be starting to unwind here, not just in the crypto markets. Well, like they say, liquidity is something you don't think about till it's gone. It's ephemeral, right? So as the takeaway, if I may, um, I'm going to go back to this great speech by David Foster Wallace. Um, And really the point of his talk at the end of it, what he reiterates is the real value of education, of insight, um, it really has almost nothing to do with knowledge. It's really about simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and so essential, but so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over and over, this is water, this is water, this is water. So hopefully, listeners, you will take that away this week. This is water. Think about liquidity. Think about getting in, getting out, and what that means for you before you push that trade button. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.